take your Bibles and turn with me over to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2. How do you respond when you get bad news? Um, how do you respond? Different people respond different way to bad news. Maybe they become silent. Maybe you get angry. Maybe there's feelings of doubt. Maybe you break down. Maybe you get violent. Maybe you isolate. Maybe you blame, ignore. Maybe a feeling of disappointment. Maybe fear. Maybe um, news like uh, you're fired. Maybe you've lost your investments. Maybe there's been a car accident or a death or a sickness. Um, Maybe just a simple thing as there's no more ice cream. Different things, bad news from serious maybe to not so serious and how we respond when things um, happen to us that uh, we receive bad news. Seems like you turn on the news, there's always bad news. And it seems like if they would um, at least find, pay somebody some good money to find something good to talk about uh, for longer than 10 seconds on the news... And um, most people, they like negative news, and it makes the stories instead of the good news. Um, So people make the money on the bad news, and it seems like it's just everywhere. And so, but Micah is one of those prophets that he's a bearer of bad news. Um, He's a prophet of doom, doom and gloom. But there's a good reason for it. And he has a seriousness about it. He has a brokenness about it. And in chapter 2, Micah opens up with the word woe. A woe is not a good term. It's not a term that, uh, you know, that means uh, something great is happening. This is a term of lament. This is a term of sadness. And he uses it here as a a, a warning term. Um, he, this is a serious stuff. Uh, Micah has told Israel and Judah that God is coming. Boom, right out the first few verses of chapter 1. God is marching from heaven. He's angry. He's mad. His patience is, uh, has reached its limit. And he's had enough. And the mountains are rumbling. The, the, the forests are going to melt at his feet. And uh, the almighty God... And, and, and we better tremble because God is marching out of heaven. And Micah is saying, I hear the footsteps of God Almighty. And he's coming here. And he's looking for you. That's the kind of message. And Micah jumps right on the scene as this farmer who is, who is talking about God's righteous indignation upon his people. And we saw last week in chapter 1 that it is because of the idols and the sinfulness that is in the hearts of God's people. There is a chronic disease that has been creeping through. There is an incurable wound that the people of Israel have in their heart, as mentioned in verse 9 of chapter 1. And now it has come from Israel, and it is spreading now in Judah, the southern kingdom. 
And it's come to the gates and the doorstep of Jerusalem. And there at the temple gate. And, and God is meeting. Almost like he, this impending angel of God's wrath has been meeting down through the, God's people because of their sin. And God has used the tool to bring his wrath. And the tool that he's used is the king of Assyria and the nation of Assyria. God often will use other nations to judge his people in the Old Testament. He used Egypt. He will use Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And here in this passage of Scripture, he uses, or in the time frame of the book of Micah, uh, Assyria is the instrument that God is using to give Israel and Judah a good old-fashioned God-fearing whooping. And he has this king who has marched down and is taking the northern kingdom captive and the ten tribes in the north captive back to Assyria. And now this king has set his eyes and his goal on Jerusalem and God's people in the south. And God is, is using this as a judgment upon his people. And God is seen in a personification through the Assyrians as marching towards Jerusalem, going from one city to the next. And chapter 1 mentions these cities that kind of point an arrow to the city of Jerusalem where the king of, of uh, the southern kingdom is sitting upon the throne shaking in his boots or sandals, tunic. <laughs> and he, he's... He's in this position, and each one of these cities are mentioned as God bringing judgment to them. And right in the middle of these cities at the end of chapter 1 is the city of Jerusalem in verse 12. Right at the gate of Jerusalem. And the response that Micah expects the God's people is to shave their heads bald and fall down in repentance towards God. The shaving of their heads is... Uh, um, a way to show outward humility, outward contrition, a broken heart, and to put almost like putting on sackcloth, uncovering their feet, uncovering their head, and in, in repentance, this is, the, this is the stand that God expects his people in the face of judgment. And as God is marching down, and remember, um, Micah, weeps out in lament in verse, um, uh, in verse 8 and 9. I will wail and I will go stripped and naked. I will w make a wailing like the dragons and a mourning like the owls. Uh, so he's already given. This is, Micah is broken about what he's seen. He's broken about sin. He's broken about his own people. He's broken about the idols that are in the land. And in chapter 2, he continues this message of brokenness and this message of doom. He continues bad news. And it, it starts in verse 1, and it goes downhill from there. And he proclaims the destruction of, of God when he comes to his people. So chapter 2 is kind of divided up into two sections, verses 1 to verse 11 is the doom of, uh, uh, of the judgment of sin. In verse thir 12, 13, is a glimmer of hope 
Remember the prophets, both major and minor prophets, when they prophesied, they prophesied uh, a warning, a judgment of God because of sin, but they also had an, a second fold. There was a twofold message. The second fold was there is hope for those that repent. And oftentimes there was a messianic, there was a um, eschatological uh, aspect to that prophecy. This would be often where not only he would predict the coming judgment of God, but in the same side he would predict the coming judgment. And then a couple verses, sometimes a whole chapter, depending on how God uses the prophet, he would also prophesy of coming hope. That there is a possibility of repentance. There is a possibility of forgiveness. There is for those who are faithful and believe the message of God in the process of judgment, there can be forgiveness. There can be a pardon if you meet God's demands. And we see that in verse 12 and 13. But we'll talk about that when we get there, possibly, probably not even this evening. In fact, I would like to just focus on the two verses of chapter 2, the first two verses. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and they take them by violence and the houses and they take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. We need to ask two questions when we come to this book. Um, when we've specific, specifically come to the people of God. Number one, will God punish his people and cast them from the land for their sins? Does God mean business? Will God actually permit suffering upon his own people and shame upon his own name for the sake of judgment upon sin within his chosen people? Oh, we all expect the Amorites to be judged, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, all the other mosquito bites that are mentioned in the Scripture. We expect that. But what about God's people? Aren't God's people safe from suffering? Aren't God's people safe from judgment? Listen to what Amos 3 and verse 2 says. He answers this question. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, talking to Israel, Therefore will I punish you for all your sins. There's the answer to your question. It is because you are my people. It is because I have chosen you. It is because you are precious to me that I I chasten you and scourge you and punish you. Because I love you, that is more of a reason. It's not. Like it's God treats necessarily anybody, uh, loves anybody necessarily more than another. But he has chosen to set his name with God's people and he expects more of them. And so the answer to that question is God means business. And at this point, the Jewish people feel they're safe. They'll never be cast from the land. They'll never go into captivity. After all, they are God's people. Well, we have the luxury of having um, the Old Testament concluded. We have the book of Malachi, and we also have the New Testament. So we look back at a whole lot of history, and we recognize, oh, God did that. But from Micah's standpoint, and the people that he was preaching to in this book, they thought they were safe because they were the people of God. This leads me to another question when we ask this. 
Is there an application for us as God's people? Now, I do believe in a difference between Israel and the church. I believe a distinction between, and, and the difference in how God works in the different economies of the Old and New Testament, and how God will work with God's people, Israel, in the future. But we are, in, in essence, um, the church of God for this age. And God loves us as well as individuals and in, in God's family. And God, there are some characteristics. Scripture says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable. And I think there's a warning here for us. The question is, or, or the statement is, if the shoe fits. And, and so as we read through these things, even though this is talking to Israel... And this was a problem within the people of God, and they will be judged for it. We ought to ask ourselves, is this a problem that I have? Because God will not overlook that. God will chasten those whom he loves, and he will scourge me as his child. And so, that message of doom, it may not be in the same fashion. God's judgment may not be in the same way that he judged the people of God in the Old Testament. But how God deals with his church and how God deals with his children in this age, we ought to take heed to some of these things that are going to be mentioned of the people of Israel. Don't just overlook it and say, well, that was God talking to a nation in the Old Testament and that's just good history stuff. Let's make some practical application here this evening um, quickly with what we have. The word woe is a, a word that means howling or a wailing. We talked about that last week. Doesn't have anything to do with the mammals out in the ocean. Not wailing in that way. W-A-I-L-I-N-G. A wail, a moan, a lament, a groan. I like to see Micah as the man in black who walks into a funeral. And he proclaims, what is obvious to everyone, death. But in that moaning and weeping of what is being judged, Micah turns around and says to the living, you're going to die too. And it goes from a, from a weeping over the judgment of sin to now a warning to plead with the people that if there's anyone out there that's left who is listening to my voice, Will you straighten up? Because there is hope for those who bend the knee. And change your ways or else. Micah sees the coming of the doom of Israel and Judah not as a result of Assyria or some outside force that's working its way into the streets of Israel. But he sees the direct result, the doom and judgment of God coming upon Israel and Judah as a course of their disobedience to God. Their disobedience. That's what he's going to talk about in verses 1 and 2. Actually all the way down to verse 11. He's mentioned this. He sees the doom as a result of Israel's disobedience and wickedness. Psalm 33 and verse 10 says this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And Micah sees the reason for the woe. The reason for the lament is because God's people have left God. 
and have left following and obey, following and obeying God and they have been disobedient to God and because of their disobedience and because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry and their sinfulness, the evil or the doom is happening to us. And, and Micah wants them to understand that. It's not because there was a wicked king somewhere in Assyria who just decided to take over Israel. It was because their disobedience and God planted in the heart a wicked king to come as an instrument of God's judgment upon his people. But the reason they're experiencing the suffering and the persecution is because their own choices to reject God. And I, I would like to emphasize here in a, in a practical application for our own country, America's downfall will not become because of Islam or Russia or global warming or some nuclear disaster or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or um, Joe Biden. The downfall of America will come because we have left God. You, you can't blame any outside source of the falling apart of a nation. Never can. Nations rise and fall as God wills depending on that nation's recognition of their blessing of, from God himself. He let the Canaanite people into the promised land and their sins filled themselves up until God said, remember we talked about this Sunday with the Amorites in Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to bring Abraham and his ascendants into the land of Canaan to judge the Canaanites because, Romans chapter 1, they saw the existence that there was a creator and instead of embracing that creator and seeking more light, they went into more darkness and God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Any nation, any people who have, who, who have gone off the scene have gone off the scene because of the judgment of sin, because of the judgment, the consequences of evil. America's downfall will come because we as a nation have turned on God and disobeyed his law. And woe to us who follow this path. In the end, we can't blame war. We can't blame a president. We can't blame Cuba or any other country. Can't blame the high gas prices, bad school system, too much government or not enough government. We can only blame ourselves. We sure want to point the finger to everyone else about the consequences of sin. But it's important for us, and I would say as our church, it's important for us to understand what is our response what is our response to God's judgment? What is our response to the judgment of the wicked around us? I believe God is anticipating that, you know, you say, well, I'm, I'm not part of, of what's going on in the abortion world. I'm not part of what's going on in the homosexual agenda. I'm not part of what's going on in the, you know, on the, on the anti-God movement that's out there. Listen, you ought to have a spirit like Micah does, which is broken and weeping and saying, God, I, I, I pray on behalf of those who don't know you and can't pray. Because I have a broken spirit and a broken heart for our country. That's what we ought to be praying for. That's what we ought to look for. Instead of blaming everyone else, we ought to look into our heart and say, Lord, how, how do I deal with this personally? Every man is responsible for his own actions before God. Someone said this, the vehicle of national blessing is obedience to God's divine law. And Israel had forgotten that. They thought that they were blessed because 
they were the people of God. They thought they were blessed because they just happened to be chosen. They thought that they were blessed because, uh, you know, they, they bore a, a specific ethnicity. They thought they were blessed because of such and such. And, and, and they began to trust in the crutch of those things. And God is saying, my promises to you are sure. And I told Moses, I will bless you if you obey my law. I will cast you and curse you if you disobey my law. And I'll cast you out of this land. And they didn't recognize that their heart relationship with God and they had forgotten that. And young people, I think it's important for you as a young person to realize you are blessed today because of the choices that you have made and your parents have made for you. And continue to follow that blessing in your life. You have to begin to make those, especially teenagers, begin to make those decisions and choices themselves. If they want to reap the benefits of the blessings of God in their life, they have to be obedient. You have to be obedient to God to receive that. It just doesn't just happen. You have to take the right steps in obedience to the Lord with your heart in the right place to reap the benefits of the blessings of God. You can't take wrong steps and wrong choices and end up in the right place in God's will. You have to make the right choices and, and, and the right steps in the right relationship. And this is what's going on with Israel. This evil society had produced a wickedness. And this type of society in Micah's day, and he will address this, has produced two types of classes of people. Number one, it's produced the wealthy, powerful, influential, and the corrupt. These people had gained their power. I'm talking about what's going on in the society of of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom and in Israel. This apathy over sin, this corruption over over, over what was going on, this idolatry had resulted in a, a group of people who lived on deceit, stealing, lies, corruption, and greed. Their morality had fled their heart because they had fled from God in their heart long ago. And it created this elite, um, higher class of people. And everything they got, they got out of greed and selfishness. The second class of people that resulted from this type of environment was the poor. You just had an extreme opposite spectrum That's what sin does. It feeds on the powerful who then feed on the vulnerable. Evil becomes more powerful. And those in power begin to feed off of those uh, on the lower class and continue to corrupt and get more wicked. And then the divide gets farther and farther in the system. Now, I want to draw um, an important observation here that Micah will go into a little later on to help us understand. Those who are rich are not always rich because of some evil or wickedness. God used plenty of wealthy and rich people in the Scripture. Praise the Lord for those who have been blessed with wealth. And those who are poor are not always victims of some kind of corruption or evil that has come at them and, and uh, by some rich person. Now, our culture has said that if you're rich, then you're evil. If you're poor, then somehow you're God's people. Now, maybe not necessarily our culture, but there is a spectrum in our culture and society. 
And that has come from a liberal and faulty view of books such as Micah and some of the others in liberal theology and this um, social justice mentality in our culture today. But on a general level, and this is what was true in Micah's day, when God is removed from the throne of a nation or a people or someone's life, morality leaves the society. Because the basis of morality is found where? In God's word, any culture. The basis of morality is upon the truth of God's character and then his word that's been displayed for us and what is consistent with God's character. You throw God and God's word out of the equation and what kind of society do you have? You have a society of moral upheaval. You have a society that becomes subjective on truth or on morality. So all of a sudden, it is evil and wicked if you don't wear your mask in Walmart, but it's okay to abort the children on the weekends all that you want. What, in the sake of caring for people's lives, what, what kind of culture is that? It's a subjective. This is, this is right. This is okay. We can distort this, but this is going to be the utmost um, protection of our society if we do this. And when you throw God out, there's no basis for morality in a culture. I don't mean to be picking on the mass. It just came to my mind. <laughs> the, the reason I'm saying this is because when God it leaves a society and morality is thrown out the door, corruption follows. And those who run to power are those who, um, who have polluted and gotten the power from greed and selfishness and they end up becoming by way of that wealthy and sometimes in a society as such as that of those who are corrupt and leading the hard-working people tend to be mistreated now this is a corrupt society this can happen in a corrupt system no matter what it bears its name from whether it's capitalism or communism, even though I believe capitalism is the more righteous way. Communism, out the door. But in the spectrum of things, when morality goes out the door and God goes out the door, whether you've got a communist country, which you're not, going to have a, you're not going to have God and the word of God in a communist country anyway, but if that is taken out of a capitalistic then it is going to fall apart too because the basis of that and corruption because the people are God forsaken because they have forsaken God. And that's the picture of what's happening in the book of Micah. The rich have become wealthy on their corruption and they have abused those who are on the farther end of the spectrum who actually possibly are the ones who are trying to follow the laws and do what's right and adhere to the word of God. And they end up being mistreated. And that's what's going on. And, Paul, and, and Micah says here, woe to that kind of society. Because evil has crept in. And evil has uh, overthrow, overthrown. And those who are righteous and just, who want to do what's right, are oppressed and pushed aside in that way. And this is an election year. And what we need is we need righteous people who will stand up and rule. 
We need people who adhere to the word of God and, and the absolute authority of scripture and will do it in an honest way, in, a, in an integrity, in a character, in loyalty, and, and, and follow the words of God so then they can impose upon our society justice and righteousness and morality that is based on godly truth. That's how a culture is going to survive. That's how a nation is going to thrive. And I would contend that in American history, that has been how we've come to the point we are in being God-blessed. But how quickly we are just one election away. One Supreme Court system. It's amazing. Corruption that can come. And we need righteous people. But our elections, whoever is in office, must reflect the Word of God. And we are only as strong in our country. Uh, those who are elected are, uh, come from the voice of the majority. And if the majority are anti-Scripture, anti-morality, anti-God, anti-truth, anti-life, anti-traditional marriage, the things that we find in the Scripture, if the majority are then woe to our country. And we will be in the minority. And that will be okay. It will be hard. And that spectrum is going to be seen in much way, more of a way. And we may end up in, in the farthest reaches of the outskirts because we're going to continue to stand up for truth and live for truth. And all of a sudden, we may become the minority. And we will not be alone in Christian history if that were the case. The problem is... There's wickedness. And let's see just in the last 10 minutes that we have very quickly about these types of wicked people who are the uh, upper chalants, who are the, who are the ones running the show, who are living this type of lifestyle. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. Micah sees men sitting in their beds at night planning out the next thing that they can do that is evil. And they think about it all night long and then get up in the morning and act upon what they've been thinking and planning for. These are bed planners. They go to their bed and they pull out their daily journal for the next day and they spend all night long saying, now what are we going to do tomorrow? And, and what kind of iniquity and what kind of evil and what kind of wickedness are we going to get up to? Interesting point. Most thieves work at night, do they not? But Micah sees these men as planning in the night, but working when? In the day. They get up the next morning when it's daylight, the sun is out, and they go out and steal and murder and, and do this. In other words, this shows you what kind of society this is. They're not hiding anything. The only thing they're hiding is the plans at night in their room. But they go openly out in public and do their evil and corruption in the society. That tells you how far Israel has gone. No one's there to bring justice. No one's there to bring them back into order. No leader is there to pour the people or point the people in the right direction. This is blatant and outright rebellion in the daylight. Why do they do this? Because it is in the power of their hands to do it. That's what verse 1 says. They do it because they have no opposition. It is in their hands and they will do it. They will do whatever it takes legally or illegally. They may even dress it up to look like it's legally. 
These type of people are dressed nice. They have good positions with power. They're not the typical dark uh, wearing mass wielding thieves like from the Arabian Nights. These are men who get up the next day, look just like everyone else, and go out and live out their evil heart's agenda. And can I heed a warning here tonight? Satan loves to use those times at night when we are alone in the loneliness of our heart. And that's where our heart begins to plan and think, come out. I've always said to teenagers, generally nothing good happens at night. God intended the nighttime to be for sleep and resting for the next day. Unless you're a third shifter. (laughs) And so, you know, staying up till midnight and one and two and three o'clock in the morning because you don't have to get up until noon the next day. Generally, nothing good happens out of that outcome. Because the scripture says, John chapter three and verse 19, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so Micah just pointed out here, it's not that they go out and, you know, it's not that they do all this in the dark. They, you know, they're not, they're not running to, the, to, to their friends, sneaking around at parties in the night and on the streets and on the bars. It can make its way, sin and corruption and evil can make its way into your bedroom, into your bed, in your living room, on your TV, or on your computer screen, in your bed, your schemes, your plans, you working to get your coworker back or your position or your situation or why you're on Facebook and some of those things. And those, those times of vulnerability, when your mind begins to wonder, those times of aloneness in the dark, evil does not seem to start its way out in the broad daylight. It seems to always begin in the darkness. The alone times of the secret. I'm reminded of Solomon as he pictures the young man in Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 9. It says this, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark of night, the young man is seen walking on the road until the strange woman grabs him. Solomon points out, I looked outside of my window and it was dark, it was night, it was in the evening when he should have been home. And instead, he was living out. Listen to what Psalm 4, 4 says. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. In other words, the psalmist says, be careful in your own bed that you still your heart and you take control of your thoughts. The righteous take the time at night on his bed to stand in awe at the goodness and the graciousness of God. Psalm 4 and verse 3 says, The Lord will hear when I call out to him. The comment that I make here just to end, beware of the dark. We're getting close to Halloween, are we not? We, we need to be careful. Because it is in their bed and in their times of aloneness where they are, where they're vulnerable, that's where they work their plans of evil and then they go out and they achieve and they do what they do brazenly, openly, in rebellion in the daytime the next morning. And what is it that they do as they practice this? Verse two, and they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage. 
What were they doing all night in their beds? Well, they weren't sleeping, that's for sure. They were coveting. Their idolatry had brought them to a place of not only sexual perversion, but extreme greed, covetousness, coveting, materialism, and hedonism. You know what materialism is? A love for things. Hedonism is, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. These are the core, core thoughts of both hedonism and materialism is covetousness. Coveting in your heart. When the human heart sets up as himself as his own God and the human passions run free to do as the heart desires, then man will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. Their actions ignore the character of God and ignore the law of God and in the root of his evil heart, he says, I want, therefore I must take. That's the world's golden rule. He that has the most toys in the end wins. They coveted fields and houses. You see, this was Adam and Eve's downfall, was it not? This was the thinking that that Satan planted into their hearts and it was there and they began to think about it. Somehow God is holding out on me. God has something that I don't have and I should have it. It should be mine. He's got a knowledge of good and evil and I don't have that and I should. I'm going to get it for myself. It looks good to eat. should taste good if it looks good. I'll take it. If it gives me that position, gives me that power, In other words, Eve thought in herself, this is not enough for me. She was not content with all the trees of the field. She was was wanting the one, and it's like what what one theologian said, God gave them uh, an abundant yes and a singular no. And in the human heart, they wanted the singular no and forgot the abundant yes. We want what we cannot have. One commentator said, I need something that I do not now have and I need it in order that I would be happy. Do you remember a king who comes just before Micah, several chapters, several generations, or at least a couple in 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. Do you remember he cries and weeps to his wife? I want it, I want it. And he goes and lays on his bed and cries, I can't get it, I can't get it. And she says, you're the king. You go out and get what you want. It's hedonism. It's materialism. And what has happened is this has crept now into the society and Micah sees this. And what has happened is this poured itself onto those who have led. You see, Jesus goes a step further in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, because you, he saw his sin, he, just because you may not act upon that sin, it is what you desire in your heart. Jesus goes there. You may not have, you may not go out and take that other man's wife, but if you covet in your heart, you've already committed We have a heart problem in America. We have a heart problem in our homes. We have a heart problem that says, I want, therefore I must take. We live in a society that is covetous. We look at it, we lust after it. Someone said, seeing and salivating. That is our two words. It's one of the easiest sins to commit. We can covet something and not actually take it. 
We can covet it in our heart. But it consumes us all day long. That's all we think about. Ecclesiastes 4.4 again, I consider all travail and every right work that this man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The envy of your neighbor. They stay awake up all night long thinking and planning what will make them happy and then they go out the next day and take what they said the night before will make them happy. Their actions, they will take and oppress. Application here, Christians can do this too. Honey, how are we going to keep up with the Joneses? Not the Joneses back there. Just the Joneses. Look at their house, look at their car, look at their porch, their boat, their paint job. Theirs, theirs, theirs. Do you know so-and-so just got a promotion? Why does he always get the better job? Teenagers do this all the, th- all the time. How come we can't get a super in- uh, entertainment system like so-and-so? Where's our new 70 million gallon swimming pool and spa? Where's the new iPhone coming out? I can't wait to have it because it will make me. We see it in our culture by the worry over our inheritance. Do you think mom and dad will still have me in their will? Siblings rival over each other and claim what's rightfully theirs. How can mom and dad ever do that to us? After all that I worked and all that I did, I'm just protecting out what is rightfully mine. Families actually suing each other because they want more. Not only do we see this in a coveting property and things and uh, position, but we also see it in coveting people. Our evil heart thinks, she's got a pretty, he's got a pretty wife. Things are a bit hard at home right now. I'm entitled to wonder. My marriage is not going so well, so maybe just talking with a coworker won't hurt. You say, well, pastor, Christians don't do that, do they? Oh, yes, they do. If they sit all night long and ponder in their heart, begin to get discontented. It begins to destroy homes and families because what happens between church members and coworkers and families and neighbors. Listen, we can blame Obama, the school, the government, the political society, your job, your boss, all you want. But America's problems and the church's problems and our problems in our generation is that we are a covetous people that are not satisfied and shame on us. Greed and power and influence and money and possessions and property and people. The grass is always greener on the other side, so I have to have that grass. It consumes every area of our culture today. It is just as much in the church as it is in the streets. There is no difference in how we live and how the world lives, and we know it. What is it that you have to have that, you're, that, you're, that your neighbor has so just so that you could have it so it can make you happy? I'm not saying that we need to sell everything we have and stand out on the street corner and be beggars. It's not the point. We don't see spirituality anymore in poverty. What I'm saying here is what drives you at night? What drives you at your job? Why do you, do, why do you want that possession Why do you want that car? Why do you want that new house or that new boat or that new phone or that new entertainment system? Is it because it will make you happy? Or is it because it's where your satisfaction is going to be? Why do you do what you do? Why do you want what you want in your heart? Do you want that next item 
so that you can sit around and waste your time feeding your flesh because you can do it instead of doing more for God? Adult, do you want that next boat or golf club or deer stand or TV or bedroom set so that you can leave God out high and dry and sulk in your fun and entertainment and luxury and forget your devotion time, God time, church time, and the things of the Lord? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Paul gave us a very promising statement in Philippians chapter four when he said, no matter what state I'm in, I have learned to be content. Are you content today with what God has given you? Are you trusting him to supply your needs and your wants? Have you given him your desires? What is your relationship today with the Lord? Many of us today maybe are feeling guilty because of some desire, some thing that we've coveted and it's, it's gotten better part of our heart and it's distracted us from our relationship with God. It's like the circle that one... Um, Individual said, asked the young person, his heart's desire to buy a truck. Why do you want to buy a truck? So I can get a job? Why do you need a job? So I can pay for my truck? Why do you need a truck? So I can get to my job? Why do you need to get to your job? Because I need to pay for my truck. And the cycle continues and continues in a person's life. And God is the last on the priority list. Micah warns the people here. There's a problem. There's a materialism problem. There's a covetous problem that you want, therefore you must have. And it's deteriorated the society to the point that the, that the high up take from those that are down and then there is no shame in what they do. Father, I pray as we close tonight. I know we went over just a little bit. But this is such a personal thing, this, this sin of of uh, coveting. Lord, I pray in our own heart that we would um, be satisfied. Lord, thank you for blessing. And Lord, all of us have experienced um, a portion of your blessing in our lives. And we ought to be careful that things don't rule us, that we are the proper priority of the things seeking first the kingdom of God and allowing the things around us to be used as tools for your honor and glory not for the things to master us and to rule us and Lord constantly looking around to the next place and the next thing Lord we would be so careful can I pray for some tonight that maybe are struggling in their thought life and in their heart at home in the darkness in their alone time, they be careful that Satan doesn't use those opportunities or their flesh take advantage and they're tempted to continue to indulge in the things of the world and in the wickedness that's around them. And Lord, I pray for those who are so blatant in their rebellion that they're willing to get up the next day and just continue life as if nothing's happened, continue in their wickedness and their corruption. Would, would, you, would you prick their hearts so that they would turn to you before it is too late? And would we moan and woe for the sake of our country who is so steeped in having and getting and living for the idols and the things of this world that motivates their hearts. 
And Lord, would you, on behalf of our prayers and our requests, would you send revival so that we recognize in our country we need you. We need to hunger and thirst after the things of the Lord first and foremost uh, so that we can see your blessing upon us. Would you be with our next generation and our young people to realize that blessings come Godly blessings, not success in the eyes of the world, but success according to your standpoint of being faithful to the word of God is the happiest and the most contented and the, and the most blessed place to be in all the world, even without the things, to learn to be content. And uh, encourage us in the days ahead in this lesson tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.